the early 80s, Bill Cosby did a comedy bit where he talked about a dad who had taken his son to football practice for all of his childhood on into his college life. And Cosby, in his Bill Cosby way, talks about all of the car rides they took together and the times they would get on the front lawn and scrimmage together and all of the ways that as a dad, he would equip and encourage his son to get out there and do his best on the football field. And Cosby goes on to say, eventually this boy ends up playing college football at a major university and is in one of the biggest televised games of the year and has one of the best games of his life. And the television cameras catch up with the boy, and the boy is out of breath, and he's all sweaty, and he's all excited, and the dad is excited because of all the work that he put in to get his kid to that game. The television cameras pan over to the boy, and the boy looks at the television screens and goes, Hi, Mom! (laughs) (laughs) This is that day. This is that day. There are women who serve tirelessly behind the scenes every single day of their lives, whether they're moms or not. And this is the high mom sort of moment that we take and set aside every year. This woman that we're talking about for this morning is a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans did not mix. They did not spend time together. They absolutely despised one another. They were from two different regions, but two neighboring regions. And a good Jewish person would do everything possible to avoid coming into any contact whatsoever with a Samaritan person. So much so that the most direct route to where Jesus was traveling was through Samaria. Most of them would have gone all the way around. They would have taken the long way around just in case they happened to run into a Samaritan person. Jesus, of course, chooses not to take the long way around marches himself straight through the middle of Samaria and plops himself down at a famous well, a well made famous, if you look it up back in Genesis 33, Jacob's well. And it's the middle of the day, the Mediterranean noonday sun. He's dirty, he's dusty, he's tired, he's been traveling. He needs a drink. And he knows, she doesn't know, but he knows, she is going to come draw water from that well. Sure enough, she shows up, and Jesus makes a simple request. Can I have some water, please? And she's a Samaritan. She knows the routine. She knows they're not supposed to be chatting. She's incredulous. What? I'm a Samaritan woman. You want me to draw water for you. Now, water, drawing water was, quote, women's work at this time and this location in history. It was what women did. They gathered together. They would go. They would pull the water. They would bring it back for their households. And this is a desert climate. You didn't do this typically in the middle of the day. Women would gather to draw water in the early mornings or sometimes after dusk when it was cooler. And it was literally the water cooler of the day for them. They would swap stories. They, would, they didn't have email. They couldn't text each other. So they would swap community news. They would gossip. They would catch up on life together at the well. So if you were a woman who was drawing water at high noon, 
you were alone for a very specific reason. You were isolated. Maybe you were the one they gossiped about that morning. Maybe you were the scandal of the day. Maybe you were hoping not to be seen by anyone. And then this dusty Jewish rabbi shows up and asks you to pull him up some water. As we said, Jews didn't speak with Samaritans, and a Jewish man like Jesus wouldn't speak with a woman in public, whether she was a Samaritan or not. If you were a man with the profession, the teaching, the rabbi, the stature that Jesus was amassing in his community, it was scandalous for you to even have a conversation with a woman in public. Jesus doesn't really seem to care much about any of the social conventions that were laid out before him, and he asks her simply, can I have a drink? The well would have been a place where historically both of them would have known other stories that had gone down at a well. Throughout the Old Testament, if you look it up, many times a betrothal or a wedding proposition happens at a well. Isaac, Jacob, and Moses were all betrothed at a well. So the stories of conversations at the well were usually of that nature. And so maybe she was wondering, well, what's going to be expected of me? What is he asking me here? There's a commentator named Gail O'Day who talks about this history of betrothal at the well and how interesting and how different this story is. She says, Jesus is not looking for, the, for a betrothal. He's looking for a witness who will recognize the Messiah and bring the despised people of Samaria to him. And what is absolutely astonishing about John chapter 4 is that a Samaritan woman becomes that witness. She was the most unexpected carrier of the good news of Jesus. And throughout the Bible, God uses unexpected people. He uses the younger brother to trump the older. He uses the poor to teach the rich. He uses the meek to inform the powerful. We never get tired of finding ourselves unaware when someone unexpected says something absolutely profound. And this is what she was doing. You know, when we hear children, it's Mother's Day, right? I can tell a story about my child. When we hear children say profound things, they catch us unaware. I expect profound things from, from, from statesmen and women and people who are paid to communicate. But when my kid gives me a profound truth, it catches me. We were in the car recently, and um, typically we holler at each other in the car, and everybody's scrambling, and everybody's whining, and somebody needs water, and we're late for something. So our car rides in our family are usually loud and messy. But in particular, this one day, we were actually having a competition. My then five-year-old son and I were bantering back and forth about who loved each other more. I love you to the moon. I love you to the moon and back infinity times, all that kind of stuff. And I said to him, baby, I love you so much, my heart's going to burst. And he got real quiet. I just kept driving. I was kind of thankful for the few moments of silence. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and he had tears streaming down his face. I said, oh, buddy, I said, what's wrong? Why are you crying? He says, well, mama, I love you. And I wrote this down because I wanted to remember. He goes, mama, I love you so much too, but I'm not ready for my heart to burst. 
He goes, that much love sounds like it could really hurt. Right? I was like, wow, if you only knew what you just said. There's a website in a little community called Elk County, Kansas, and their site has, has amassed thousands of hits because they took the time to poll a bunch of four to eight-year-old children and asked them to define love. And some of the most profound truths came from these unlikely places. One kid said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) (laughs) But one said this, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, little eight-year-old girl. She said, but if you mean it, you should say it a lot because sometimes people forget. There's reasons that websites like this get thousands of clicks. If I said that, you'd be like, eh, all right, that makes sense. But when an eight-year-old technically shouldn't know better, utters profound truths, we listen. This is why Jesus uses a Samaritan woman to run back to her town and tell them all the good news of what she had experienced that afternoon at the well. Can you imagine how she must have felt when he did strike up the conversation? Probably at first a little irked. I wanted to come here on the sly and now he's here. But I wonder too if part of her was just thrilled that someone noticed her. How long had she been out of the morning well group? How long had she been drawing up water by herself? How long had it been since someone engaged her in meaningful conversation. And you see in their banter that she tries to hide, and Jesus won't let her. He pushes for a relationship, and she keeps hiding behind the rules. He says, get me a drink, which is the beginning of a relationship, a conversational relationship. He needed something from her. When you need something from somebody, when you ask them for help, it validates them. You have something that I need. I see value in you. Can you get me a drink? Can you help me out here? And she hides behind the rule. Whoa, you are a Jew. We do not hang out. And he says, look, if you knew, I'm going to push this relationship. If you knew who was asking you for this water, you would do it. And she says, look, Here's the rule. I, even if we could talk to each other, I can't pull up this water. It's physically impossible for me to pull up the water that you might need. And he says, look, I can make it so you are never thirsty again. A relationship. And she still hides a little bit behind a rule. She acquiesces and says, okay, okay, give me that water. But why? Probably so that she never had to be embarrassed again. Wouldn't, wouldn't, Not having to go get that water be marvelous to someone like her who was embarrassed every day to go. And then he says, look, go get your husband. I know something about you. His point in telling her, I know you have had five husbands and the guy you've got now isn't your husband, wasn't to shame her. It was to let her know that she was known. So much has been made of what her scandal may have been. If you read the the commentators on this, everybody's curious. What did she do? How does a woman at that point in history plow through five husbands? What's the scandal? Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't really care. He doesn't 
berate her. He doesn't go through a list of the could've, should've, and the would'ves. He simply says, look, I know. Let's move on. Whatever it was that held her back, that kept her there alone, he didn't force her there, and he moves on. And they have this beautiful conversation about living water and about the life and the beauty and the justice and the mercy and the joy that is found in Jesus. And she is so compelled by it. She leaves her jar behind. She leaves what kept her there behind, and she races off, and she tells her community about what Jesus did. She is the first evangelist in the book of John, and this conversation is among the longest recorded conversations Jesus ever has with an individual all throughout Scripture. And can you imagine what it would have been like to be the townsperson on the other end of it? She comes blazing back into town talking. She's usually hiding out. I'm sure people came out in droves just to find out if, you know, what the scandal, wow, wow, she's talking. Let's go hear what this is, right? And it says many believed because of her testimony. And they came back and they found Jesus and they brought him because of what she said they brought him. They asked him to stay for two days. And then they believed as well. At this time in history and still today throughout much of the developing world, the least likely to carry wisdom and to, and to carry truth are women. But yet they are among the most profound when they do. When poverty reaches its height, communities will sell off their girls, they'll get rid of their daughters, and they'll quiet the voices of women. And this story reminds us of how much beauty and truth there is if we dare to let them speak. Using the least of these, as Jesus did not just with women, but if you look at the disciples, they were a messy group of men fighting often, trying to find their way and figure out, jockeying for position They were fishermen, they were uneducated, they were a bunch of raw material that Jesus had to mold into disciples. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus using inefficient methods to get heavenly kingdom results so that in the process, we build a relationship with him. A couple weeks ago, I dared to bake banana bread with my daughter I don't bake much, so when I do, it's kind of an epic undertaking, and we were side by side in the kitchen, and we had this whole brand new bag of flour that the whole time we were getting everything prepped, she just kept asking, can I open the flour? Can I open the flour? She's five, just turned five. Can I open the flour? All right, okay, fine. Now's your turn to open the flour. And we had scissors sitting there, and I thought she was just going to cut the top of the flour bag off. She took the scissors, and she just stabbed. bag of flour. And then she, before I could stop her, she stuck her little fingers in there and she just went like this and ripped the bag of flour open everywhere. And my first thought was, this is why we don't do this more often. (laughs) It is so inefficient to bake with a five-year-old. It is inefficient to use scandalized women to use uneducated masses, to use the poor, the weak, the needy, the struggling. It is inefficient. God could have come down and gone like this 
and all of it would have lined up and the universe would have started to work just the way he wanted it to. But he chooses to use me and you and all of us in our inefficiencies. He uses us because we relate to him in the process and we come to know his joy and glory along the way. And that is what he did with this woman. He entered into a relationship with her because she was worthy of fully knowing him. Kofi Annan once said, there is no tool for development more effective than the empowerment of women. And when we see their value and we see their worth and we release them to do God's good work, they can change the world. Just look at what God did through a scared teenage girl named Mary. So on this day, I want to leave you with just a few thoughts from this conversation on what Jesus did to release her to do her good work with the hope that all of us will see the women and the men in our lives, but the women in particular today, and release them to do the same. And I know not all of us are mothers, not all of us have daughters, but chances are you have an aunt, a niece, a sister, a cousin, a coworker. Maybe you're a supervisor with women on your team. I think it's worthy to note some of the great things that Jesus did to cheer her on toward his goals for her life. First, he treated her as a smart and serious thought partner. He engaged her in meaningful conversation. Their banter about where to worship indicated the, the fight that Jews and Samaritans once had. Their fight, their hundreds of years of hatred was based on the proper place for worship. She was smart. She knew that. He knew it. She engaged her as a serious thought partner and had a high-level conversation with her. He gave her space to show what she knew. Second, he treated her as a capable witness. He didn't have an encounter with her and say, now remember what just happened. I'm going to go tell everybody else what just happened. He had an encounter with her and then he trusted her to go share the news to her people with her words as her story. He treated her as a capable witness. He validated her. This goes back to something that we said earlier. In a very human moment, he validated her. He says, I'm thirsty. Can you help me? I trust you to help me here. I believe you've got something to offer me. He validated that she, a woman who seems to have nothing to offer anybody, had something to offer him. He found the one thing in that moment that she had, a bucket that she could have drawn water up, and he validated her. He treated her as fully a full image bearer of God. He did not overlook her as a nuisance. He didn't objectify her either. He didn't start out his conversation by saying, hey, good looking lady at the well, can I have some water? He saw her as a full image bearer of God and he respected her. He refused, he, he refused to be defined by the social customs of the day that limited her. Look, I don't care that you have a, a, a past. I don't care that you're female. I don't care that you're a Samaritan. You are a child of God. None of that matters. What matters is our relationship to one another. He did not allow the social customs of that day to define their relationship. He invited her 
to find her voice and share her story. There are places in scripture where people are told to be quiet and sit on what they know for a little bit. He didn't do that to her in this story. He said, go. When she ran, he didn't stop her. She found her voice and she shared her story. And lastly, he pointed her toward himself, toward God. The point of their conversation was heavenly. It was to bring a heavenly perspective to her life. And he pointed her toward God, and he trusted in the connection that they had that she would find in him worship and beauty and truth. And what happens? She does that. She races back to the town. She's so overwhelmed and overcome by what she experienced that you really can't sum it up any other way than worship. She threw all of the convention aside and said, guess what just happened? I met this man. He told me everything I ever did, which is to say he knew me. He knows me. You've got to come experience this too. Friends, every day we have an opportunity to do the same. To the people we meet, again, whether men or women, but to the women among us, we have an opportunity to do that very same thing. Irma Bombeck once said, when I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say to God, I used everything you gave me. And my hope for the women among us and the men too is that we would have people cheering us on in life so that we can stand before God and say, I used it all. I had every opportunity and I used it all. What a glorious, beautiful thing that would be if every woman in the world was empowered to use everything. Choked up. How stereotypical, right? The woman on Mother's Day is choked up. But I believe this to be so true. I want to close by just telling you a story about what it looks like when this happens. Because as we sit here today and as I stand up here and use my voice, there are women all over the world who don't get to do that and who are struggling just to stay alive this day. There's a woman who's become famous around 2009. She kind of hit the international scene. Her name is Terere Trent. She's a woman from Zimbabwe who attended the early years of school until her father said to her, you're a girl, you don't get to go to school anymore. And so she stopped to do the housework while her brother kept going to school, and she would sneak in and do his homework with him so she could learn. And at age 11, she was married off. By 18, she had three children. By age 20, she had five children when Heifer International came through her town. And a woman from Heifer asked the girls in this village, the women in this village, to tell them what their greatest dreams were. And Teray Ray sat there with everybody else and said, well, here are my dreams. I want to live in the U.S. I want to earn a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a Ph.D. She confessed that later she didn't even entirely knew what those things were. She had just heard other African women say that, and she thought it sounded good. Her mother then said to her, write that down. So she wrote it down. She buried it in a tin, she put it in a tin can, and she buried the tin can under a rock on a pasture near her home. Heifer International continued to do work in her community, as did several Christian aid organizations. And all of those organizations noticed she had something about her that should just continually be encouraged and supported. 
So she started working for the Christian aid organizations and for Heifer and started to save money, and they helped her enroll in correspondence courses at Oklahoma State University. Her entire village chipped in, and she saved and saved, and after she had gotten plane tickets that were gifted to her by these aid organizations, she saved up $4,000 in cash that she stuck in a sock and tied around her waist. She got on a plane and flew to the U.S. She took all five of her children with her, with, with her. She married a violent and abusive man, and she didn't want to leave them behind to be sold off and abused. When they got here, she nearly starved. They blew through $4,000 really quick, as you can imagine, in the United States. And one of the professors she had at Oklahoma State was part of a church. And he went to his church, and they took this family in and continued to encourage and empower and equip this woman so that she could feed her children and keep going to school. Fast forward, she is now doctor to Ray Ray Trent. She's part of a project in her hometown in Zimbabwe that when completed will house 4,000 preschool and elementary school children and help them all receive educations. And she is on the front lines of the battle that children in those communities have with HIV and AIDS. She travels the world speaking about what you can do if you just invest in the life of an unlikely woman, which when we look at it and we see it, we said, well, of course, that's what Jesus did. Jesus loved her, empowered her, and equipped her. And her final words were, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see a man who knew me. Friends, let us pour our best efforts into the women and the girls around us so that they too can drop the jar and run back to the community and say, come look at what God did. Come look what he can do in you too. Amen? Please pray with me. Amen. (laughs) Friends, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love every single one of us, male and female, single, married, parents, not parents, young and old. You love us all. We all find our stories in you. There is a story for each one of us in your scriptures. Thank you for laying out your call to each of us there. Help us now to think on this day about what we can do with the women and girls who sit next to us and how we can move fully into worship and into your future together. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And all of God's people said, Amen.